Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Dave Benner from Nashville, Tennessee. Appreciate everyone tuning in. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Dave Benner. Dave is a contributor for the Mises Institute, also with the 10th Amendment Center, And he has actually released several books, including an upcoming book titled Thomas Paine, A Lifetime of Radicalism. Dave, did I give you a proper introduction? (laughs) You certainly did, Kelly. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate you inviting me. I love it. I was referred um, to chat with you, and you're someone who, of course, I know you're very involved with, um, of course, the Mises Institute. If it's all right... Uh, could you introduce yourself to the Kelly Patrick Show audience? Uh, where are you from? What brought you to pursue, uh, I guess you could say, liberty-leaning uh, uh, or liberty-centric uh, ideology? And, and uh, if you have anything to say about your political evolution, I assume every, everybody's journey is a little bit unique. But what can you tell the listeners of the Kelly Patrick Show about yourself? Yeah, well, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I stumbled upon libertarian ideas for the first time around 2004. Actually, during a college research project, I randomly stumbled upon uh, one of Murray Rothbard's books, actually. And that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole, um, finding out about you know these ideas. That kind of led me to Michael Badnerik and Thomas Woods and um, <laughs> all sorts of different thinkers, Jacob Hornberger and, uh, you know, Bastiat, all the the classics. And um, well, I took an interest in history. I'm really interested in liberty-oriented history, and I really specialize in the American founding period up through the Civil War. So the antebellum period is kind of my forte. 
Um, I consider myself a child of the Ron Paul revolution. Definitely got on board that train in 2008 and in 2012. Um, but I'm a recovered neocon. I was actually a hardcore, you know, right wing nationalist neocon in the early 2000s. And it's kind of embarrassing now, but I used to cheer on the wars, kind of cheer on, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, the modern right champions that I think is just downright destructive now. So, um, you know, I'm part of the Libertarian Party. I'm actually the region two rep of my region. Um, so I represent Georgia, Florida, um, Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi in the uh, the LNC. So that's a national committee of the Libertarian Party. So I'm very involved in the party side and just the ideas and the history side. Interesting. You said 2004 and you mentioned Michael Bagneric. Um, He's, for whatever reason, I'm relatively new to all of this. So my story, real brief, is I was also a, I guess you could say a Republican neocon type. I don't, I didn't think, didn't put that much thought into it, but I always voted Republican. I seem to agree with my father politically. And so I kind of just rolled along with that type of uh, thought process. And then 2020 happened. And I was like, what the hell's going on? You know, Trump's the president. I thought, he, you know, he was going to drain the swamp. Started looking at the numbers. I was like, well, he actually did not drain the swamp at all. And then on top of that, of course, the COVID insanity and shutting everything down. So I'm relatively very new to all of this, but very intrigued. You mentioned Michael Badnerick. He was, of course, the libertarian candidate for president in 2004. That's a name that's not mentioned as much. I mean, you described yourself as a child of the Ron Paul revolution. Of course, he ran in 88, but then it was mostly 2008 and 2012. Um, since you mentioned it, tell me about your take on uh, Bad Narek. Yeah, well, Bad Narek, man, he really intrigued me back then. He was like no one else I had ever kind of seen um, before. He was really, I think, the last truly radical libertarian party nominee for president and you know he was a really interesting guy had a particular passion for teaching the ideas of liberty to young people he would go around to different college campuses wherever he could get invited and speak of the evils of the state and it was you could just tell he was born to do that and you know he's kind of infamous because you know he he didn't believe in even having a driver's license um, he thought that that was a over overreach on the fat on the part of the state. So really interesting guy. He actually just passed away. I want to say like three months ago. So, um, you know, I never had a chance to meet him. I'm sorry to say, but he certainly enthralled me in that 2004 campaign and was one of the key people that pointed me down the road to finding out all sorts of other people that are, you know, really influential, you know, Rothbard and woods and, um, you know, some of the ones I mentioned earlier. So would he be one of the first guys who really influenced you? I know you mentioned him toward the beginning, but he, of course, ran. First off, how old are you, Dave? Yeah, I'm 39. Okay. Same age as me, born in 83? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. So in 2004, did you vote for Badnerick? Yes. Yes, I did vote for Badnerick. I, I had voted for uh, Badnerick proudly and uh, definitely would not have taken that back. He was a great candidate and I don't believe in, you know, voting for the least of what I would consider to be two evils. So, yeah. Interesting. So if we were to rank, you and I are the exact same age, the libertarian candidates for president of our lifetime. (laughs) 
I'm new to this. You tell me you're the expert. Um, I assume Ron, Ron Paul would probably be at the top of the list. He was 88, so that counts as a libertarian candidate for president. <laughs> How would you rank, of our, since 1983, the libertarian candidates for president? Who, who's been yeah. the best or embodied it? You know, you hear Dave Smith reference um, Harry Brown a lot. Yeah, I actually forgot who it was in 84, so I can't opine on that. But number one, absolutely Ron Paul. Number two, Michael Badnerick. Oh, wow. Th- okay, so so Badnerick's number two. Yeah, for me, he was. Um, number three, I would probably say Joe Jorgensen. Wow, okay, yeah. okay. Um, number four, Gary Johnson. David David Berglund was eighty four. Okay, I don't I don't know enough about David Berglund, but number four would probably have to be um, Gary Johnson, and number five Bob Barr. I just I couldn't stand Barr. Okay, very interesting. Um, and so so let's run down those again. Number one's Ron Paul, then Badnerick, then Jorgensen's three, then four is Gary Johnson. And then five is bar. You didn't mention Harry Brown. The the ninety two. Oh, I'm so sorry. Harry Brown number three before Jorgensen, okay. and then the rest of the order sustains. I'm so sorry. That's Harry okay. Brown was yeah. amazing. I, we didn't plan this out. I you know, it's yeah. Kind I of like a, I like Ben Narek a little bit more than Brown, but Brown was a legend as well. So okay. Um, and another guy you mentioned is who many thought would get the. Uh, uh, candidacy in in 2020 right yeah jacob hornberger i actually maintain a, a decent friendship with him i'm not super close with him but we exchange texts from time to time but i thought he was an amazing candidate he knows all the issues left and right there's a few things that i've disagreed with him over the years but he's probably cranked out like twenty thousand different articles on libertarianism and different ideas so that's you know to be expected but Hornberger is great. I still consider him a friend. Okay. But you rank Joe Jorgensen pretty high. I guess relatively. Um, I think that she was, I don't particularly like how they ran that campaign in some respects, but like the way that she stood on the issue, she stood on the right side of almost all the issues. And she was, uh, you know, I, she didn't really wow me with, you know, charisma really you know, energize me to the same extent Ron Paul did, but I think she was right on the issues for the most part. She wasn't nearly as bad as like Bob Barr and Bill Weld were on things. That's for sure. Okay. She was at least a educated, thoughtful libertarian, which, you know, Weld, you wouldn't really be able to say that, <laughs> right? Correct. Absolutely. You said it, man. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> so, um, Joe Jorgensen, of course, has gotten kind of a bad rap by the current um, flavor of the Libertarian Party, correct? Maybe a little bit. I don't think that she's considered, you know, an outcast or a pariah, even in the Mises caucus circles, which I'm very much a part of, a very big supporter of that caucus. Um, There's very few people that are down on Joe. Some people are disappointed the way the campaign was run, like I said, but, um, you know, Almost everyone universally thinks Joe is a good libertarian. Okay, so. okay, that's for, refreshing to hear. I I interviewed Joe Jorgensen during her campaign, and she was the first libertarian I ever voted for. My wife and I both voted for her, and so I was I was proud of it, and I've maintained that 
Um, although at times, like when she went on the Patrick Bet David podcast, and you know, there's been times where it's hasn't looked so great, but she kind of fell that into was a, yeah. That was a really bad interview for her, man. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing. So, so how long have you been involved? Right now, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dave. You help run the Libertarian uh, National Party Twitter account. I do. Myself and Reed Cooley run it, basically us two. We have other people that run the LP, um, other social media platforms that I do. Um, tangentially, I've been around in the party since 2004, actually, when I stumbled upon these ideas for the first time. I got very loosely involved in the in the party. You know, I was very young at the time, wasn't that well connected with it. Um, kind of had an interregnum where I left in 2008 for two reasons. One, the ascension of Bob Barr, who I couldn't stand. And number two is Ron Paul running as a Republican. So that kind of took me out of the party more or less for a few years. I reentered it back in the mid to 2010s, mid 2010s. Um, you know, I came back and I haven't been disappointed since I love the trajectory of the party and nothing has given me more, um, satisfaction and energy in you know, the trajectory of the party since 2004 and now. So it's great. Interesting. You touched on something earlier. You said you were previously a traditional, like, big government Republican neocon type. I come from a family, at least on my father's side, my dad, my brother, and now even my damn 13-year-old son will lecture me about how voting libertarian is a waste of your vote. And you should vote Republican, okay? Literally, my son is basically <laughs> echoing what my brother and my father say, which is cool. You know, it's okay to have your own thoughts. Um, but you seem to be very energized about the, the Libertarian Party, right? Of course, you're you know, all in on it. Could you touch a little bit on your evolution from being a big government Republican to what I know reading Rothbard, I'm sure Anatomy of the State and everything else you read um, mm. helped with the evolution there. But then also, uh, uh, contrary to what my damn 13-year-old punk son tells me, uh, why should we be energized and even optimistic about the future and the current state of the Libertarian Party? So I know I threw a lot at you there, but it, what are yeah. your thoughts? Oh, man. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. As far as my personal evolution, yeah, I used to buy hook, line, and sinker into the belief that Republicans kind of stood for less government, smaller government, you know, smaller budgets, um, less intervening in the average person's life. But really the way, especially the Bush administration panned out in my youth, it, it certainly didn't, it wasn't that way. <laughs> um, you know, from the get-go, Bush got involved in all sorts of different uh, military theaters, first in Afghanistan, then in Iraq. And, um, you know, even more than that, I mean, Somalia was being fought at that time. There was different excursions um, throughout the world. And, you know, that was one of the biggest things. And that was one of the last things I changed on was war because I did participate in what we call pro-America rallies to support the Iraq war back then. And I feel disgusted of it now. Um, but the other thing is, you know, Republicans would say that about small government. And then, you know, they added the Department of Homeland Security. They added prescription drugs to Medicare, expanding the governments and uh, overreach in two other different ways. So I just felt like the, the kind of the rhetoric didn't match their actions. And it took me a while to come around on some of the beliefs. But now I just feel like the Republicans are more or less one branch 
of the big government party, which is almost kind of like a, a uniparty. Um, you know, the establishment in Washington between Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell is actually not that far away. Those are, you know, very people that are mostly voting on percentage differences in terms of pork spending and military funding and t- like the top tax bracket, what it will pay. There's very little difference in, in those people. Um, let's see. Oh, why am I excited for the future trajectory of the Libertarian Party? Because it has recently embraced a more radical form of libertarianism that I consider utterly defensible. And, um, you know, there have been times in this party where I think that there some of the leadership has been afraid to kind of uh, be libertarian, more or less, almost like they're afraid of their their skins. And I think that this new regime is, you know, certainly to the contrary. We're really emphasizing nullification campaigns for the first time. Um, you know, we're interested in political decentralization, putting up Austrian economics to the forefront and uh, really just using anti-war and anti-inflation, anti-federal reserve vitriol as our bread and butter. So I think we have a real opportunity going into 2024 I want. I think that we are going to have a great presidential candidate. I'm going to support Dave Smith if he runs. I think he will, um, and I'm very excited about that. He's getting really great coverage on Tim Pool and Joe Rogan, some of the biggest shows in the world today, including on cable news. I think that Joe Rogan has actually outdone all of his competition combined in in one study that I read. So I'm really excited about the future. I hope that answers all you're looking for, Kelly. I think it really does, and I think you touched on some very important things there. Um, for whatever reason, I trained jiu-jitsu, and I'm a fan of MMA. I did commentary for MMA, uh, never in Tennessee, but in Ohio and Kentucky, so surrounding states. But So I'm obviously like more in tuned with the Joe Rogan stuff, but not because of that reason. For whatever reason, <laughs> however in the hell this happened, we're at this point where Joe Rogan is, in fact— the biggest media personality in the whole world, correct? I think so, and it is incredible. If you would have told me that that would happen 10 years ago, I just would not have believed you. It's it's crazy what uh, kind of independent media, where it's come from now. I think that the old kind of cable net news networks are dying. Now, there is a generational divide. A lot of older people still do watch that content, but a lot of younger people are just seceding from it, and it's encouraging to me. Um, I think that there's lots of opportunity in podcasting and alternative media to get the word out there. And I'm not saying that the Libertarian Party should always just ignore the mainstream media. Actually, you know, on on Fox News, I think Spike Cohen gets on there. Um, Dave Smith gets on there. Uh, Maj Torre gets on there. There's lots of libertarians that do get on there and, you know, speak well of our principles. But uh, it is kind of a dying medium in my mind. So. However it happened, Joe Rogan is, in fact, near the top or at the very top of total eyeballs or ears uh, out of all the media uh, outlets in the world. And not only does Joe Rogan frequently have Dave Smith on and his clips go viral describing the situation in Yemen or Ukraine or, you know, all sorts of important topics. But beyond that, Joe Rogan seems to be like adopting almost some of uh, uh, maybe Michael Malice's and Dave Smith's um, 
vernacular and their um, ideology in some ways. I've heard, I think I listened to the Tulsi Gabbard. I don't know. Oh, listen. yeah. Did you hear that one? Absolutely. I know exactly what you're talking about because he presented that same kind of video clip that Dave put in front of him during his episode with Tulsi. This is a huge white pill to me or source of hope um, that that is getting out there. It's it's just totally been whitewashed in the mainstream media, but Joe Rogan is bringing attention to it. And indeed, I think adopting some of the their beliefs. So it's fantastic. Joe, my wife is from Cuba, so she's very anti like anything socialist. So she heard the clip where Joe endorsed or whatever, said, yeah, I'm going to vote for Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, however many years ago that was. So Joel's kind, Joe Rogan's kind of moldable, okay? So he's not, yeah. he's not libertarian. He, he, I, I watched that Larry Sharp episode he did years ago, and they got pretty heated. Joe Rogan is not libertarian. He does not like the idea of, like, defunding the schools, or, you know, or things like that. And on t- at times with Larry Sharp got rather combative when that topic came up. But he is open-minded. And, and yes, he, he, is. he entertains great guests. And I don't know, I, I, I really think, and you seem to be on board with it, but the Tulsi Gabbard thing, everybody loves Tulsi Gabbard. She's leaving, she announced on Joe's podcast, she's leaving the Democratic Party. Now, she's still pretty socialist on a lot of, different types of topics but she does have you know some pretty good relatively pretty good like anti-war rhetoric and things like that which is great but the bottom line is a lot of people listen and she was talking to joe they were get along had a great episode and joe i think he even specifically do you remember, i forget the context do you remember exactly what it was on on ukraine she they played a video about dave's explanation of you know why russia invaded and uh that you know, according to the mainstream media, history always began yesterday. And a lot of people just want to, all they want to do is condemn Putin. And Putin is an authoritarian thug. I think most rulers in the world are authoritarian thugs. But just like 9-11, history didn't begin the day before 9-11. There are things that happen in foreign policy that, um, you know, persuaded Putin to do what he did. And one of them was the NATO border being pushed eastward all the way up to the border of Ukraine. Another is the participation of the CIA and State Department in the 2014 coup that replaced Ukraine's government with one that was more, um, you know, hawkish toward Russia. And another is even in the Trump presidency, they funded a multi hundred million, like a 300 million bill to send. Um, two-way both offensive and defensive capability ballistic missiles that Ukraine just put on Ukraine's uh, Russia's border essentially so there are many things that led up to it now you're right I think that Joe Rogan is not you know a libertarian so to speak but he's definitely open-minded and he's giving our ideas a platform and that's the important thing I would I'm not one of these libertarians that take like you know someone that's like 90% on our side of most things and say like they're they're just unfixable they're they're untenable they'll never be of use to us in any way i'm all about single issue coalitions so that even means if communists want to help end the wars i will align with them on that issue i don't have to give up any of my other principles to align with them just on that so um you know that's an important thing that we can you know keep our minds guided to what sucks is even some of the very far left leaning like um what do they call themselves the uh Corey Bush and AOC, what are the the um, what are the squad? 
the squad. <laughs> They're very far yeah. left leaning. So if there's any Congress congressional representation of communists right now it's probably them but they're not even anti-war that's see that's the thing that just is is really really depressing right you would think that you know some of the most hardcore progressives would be anti-war but the those people are voting for it all aoc is you know i want to give credit where credit's due some you know there's some like red-pilled left-wing dissidents like caitlin johnstone and jimmy Dore that are absolutely great still on war but you're totally right most of the progressive left is totally bought into this proxy war narrative against russia so it's very fascinating i live here in kentucky november 8th i look for my strategy is this i look forward to november 8th i'm voting for rand paul for u.s senate i hope he beats charles booker charles booker is more of a (laughs) squad i don't know are you familiar with booker I am. I see him on Twitter all the time. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's much of a chance that Booker will win, but I guess my point is this. I'm proud to be voting for Rand Paul because he's not perfect, consistent with what you were saying. Certainly not perfect. He's a little more Republican than a lot of, you know, principled libertarians would like, obviously. But at the end of the day, I do believe he's aware of what's going on and he's playing the game and he has the ultimate um, freedom or liberty centric type goals in mind for our country long term. What are your thoughts on me voting for Rand Paul? No, I agree with what you said generally. I mean, my qualms with Rand Paul are more with his strategic approach than they are his his actual stances and ideas. Now, would I oppose some of what he's voted for? Absolutely. I think he actually endorsed Pompeo, which is brutal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I think that he thought that he could get in Trump's ear and influence him in a more libertarian way. If he did, it didn't really come across in Trump's policies. What about not start that. not starting any new wars? Do you think we can credit that to Rand Paul? I don't I don't credit that because he exacerbated two existing wars, the one in Syria and the one in Yemen. So that talking point, you know, I'm I'm happy to hear it, but that's like scraping the bottom of the barrel. Because there mean, was more more troops overseas when Trump at the end of Trump's presidency than there were at the beginning of his presidency. Yeah, but to, to I will give him this is that at sometimes he did seem to want to end you know, foreign theaters in various countries and his generals lied to him about the troop presence there in, in ways that would make it unfeasible for him to do that. So I, you know, I, the deep state was totally out to get him from the start and it kind of infected the the defense department, but overall, you know, he, he could have put a halt to Yemen and, and Syria. I mean, he campaigned against starting more conflict in Syria when Hillary Clinton seemed to be, you know, the more hawkish candidate on that issue. And he exacerbated it. Now, whether Hillary Clinton would have done so or not, that's kind of a hypothetical who knows, probably she would have, but we don't know. All I can say is that it went the wrong way. Okay. So of course your contributions through your writings and your social media presence and being involved with this hopefully recent uptick for the libertarian movement across our country, um, have you feeling engaged and like this is headed in a good direction? Do you, is that an accurate description? You, you feel engaged and because you're, of your co- contributions through your writing and your uh, you know, 
helping with the Libertarian uh, National Party Twitter and everything that you're doing and, and how the party is, how Dave is on such a big stage and all of that combined, you're feeling pretty good about delegitimizing the federal government across the board. I mean, I am. I think that there's, you know, there's a lot to be really concerned about, especially the inflation crisis and, you know, getting involved in a proxy war against a nuclear power. And meanwhile, the neocons want to seem to saber rattle with China. So there's a lot to be concerned about. But yeah, I, I am optimistic about our ideas getting out there a little bit better and, you know, single issue coalitions that we can form on local levels because no one can pretend that. The libertarians will win the presidential election in 2024. We can't pretend that we're going to win Congress in 2024. But what we can do is focus on these real local elections, sheriffs, city council, um, you know, county commissioners, uh, et cetera, and nullify policies that are egregious, immoral, or unconstitutional from larger governments. And that even goes down to the local level nullifying bad state level policies. Because as we know from the COVID regime, you know, the states really destroyed a lot of the livelihoods of the people. It's not just the feds. Now, I do I do apprehend the feds more because of the extortion apparatus, the surveillance state, um, you know, the military industrial complex tied into the overseas military adventures. But there are ways that we can thwart that. And people think that the state is, you know, the federal government is so uber powerful. And in some ways it is, but a lot of their current power structure relies on localities helping them to carry out and enforce their acts or devoting resources to it. And one thing that we've seen at the 10th Amendment Center is in a lot of cases, like in terms of uh, decriminalization, like in Washington and Colorado and California, states that decided, you know, I don't care what you say, federal government, even though you maintain that marijuana is illegal, we're just going to legalize it. And they aren't sending the tanks in. They've lost that battle. And it's because they no longer have the political capital to carry it out. Now, I'd like to see that applied to other things like gun sanctuary cities and nullifying FDA regulations and things like that. You mentioned the 10th Amendment Center. What can you tell our listeners about the 10th Amendment and the 10th Amendment Center? Yeah, well, paraphrasing, the 10th Amendment is essentially all powers not delegated by the states, the federal government, are to be reserved by the states and the people. So what that means is in Article 1, Section 8, that's where most of the powers of the federal government are listed. So if it's not among that list, that is not a valid power of the federal government. And during the ratification conventions, even the Federalists who promoted the Constitution and were generally more nationalist-leaning than the anti-Federalists, they said that if the power is not listed, it's null and void. You can't carry it out from the federal government. That's reserved to the states. So what that means is that um, you know the states can push back against that. Now, like for instance, James Madison, Federalist 46, wrote that even in cases where the law wasn't necessarily unconstitutional, but it was also what it, it was simply unpopular, even then can the localities and the states push back at it. The 10th Amendment Center was kind of formed around this idea by Michael Bolden in, I believe, the mid 2000s. And their motto is the Constitution every time, no exceptions, no excuses, and uh, really focuses on nullification and thwarting the federal government at a local level and very proud to contribute there. I hope that you've heard of it, Kelly. Have you heard of it before? The 10th Amendment Center? 
Yeah. I've heard of it. Uh, admittedly, haven't spent much time uh, going through the material and and um, but but it, it sounds like a very very relevant cause that I should know more about. Sure. Um, okay, and then the Mises Institute, of course, in in Alabama. Yeah, Auburn. Um, how long have you been involved with? Actually, before we jumped into that, what is the Mises Institute? Who's Mises? <laughs> What's the Mises Institute? Well, the Mises Institute was formed by Lou Rockwell, and um, Lou Rockwell is a student of Murray Rothbard. And uh, Mises Institute is named after Ludwig von Mises, who was really probably the most influential libertarian economist in the world. Uh, now, there were more influential economists in general, like Keynes, I hate to say, but Mises is really kind of where most of modern libertarians trace kind of their economic views to. And he was an Austrian, part of the Austrian school. He was not the first. There was Karl Menger and Bam von Bauwerk and, and some others. But Mises, uh, you know, he created praxeology or the study of human action. Um, he believed that economics was not simply, you know, a, a series of numbers or studies of human behavior. It was actually a social science. It was in, inseparable from sociology, essentially. Um, so it's named after him. Now, the Mises Institute, you know, it has been around, I think, since the early 80s. Um, some of the people that started, I believe, were involved in Cato prior to that. Rothbard was one of the founders of Cato, actually. But um, today they're doing all sorts of things to spread the ideas of libertarianism. I've only contributed for about five years, and I haven't contributed a ton of articles, but I'm definitely a big supporter of what they do. Um, I've gotten a lot of my knowledge on libertarianism from that website, Mises.org, and it's really important. If you're interested in the ideas of libertarianism, there's no better bastion than that site. Now, the Mises Institute and the Mises Caucus, although they share the same name, they're not the same thing. Mises Institute, hopefully, or at least the, the mission, my understanding is, to spread the good word of, of Mises and free markets and freedom. Um, if that's through the Republican Party, great. They don't care. If it's through the Libertarian Party, great. It doesn't matter so much to the Mises Institute. Is that a, a fair description? I think it's fair a fair description, though I would say there are individuals that are very involved in the Mises Institute that have different views on political strategy. As you say, there are some that are involved in the Republican Party, actually. Thill Bishop certainly is. And there are others that you know are more involved in the Libertarian Party, Tom Woods, for instance. And there are some that aren't really involved in either party, but, you know, are willing to push the boundaries and sow the seeds of liberty in any pasture they can, regardless of which vehicle you do it in. So um, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a fair description the way you put it, though. Um, a continual theme for me is things I share on social media, my friends, more right-leaning friends, like when I call out the woke stuff or social, you know, the um, the bullshit from the left. It's so easy. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Democrats have made it so easy to make fun of them. It's crazy. <laughs> so, so of course, Republicans like that. Um, but then when you get when I kind of get to talking, since I've had my awakening a few years ago, get to talking to a lot of them. Oftentimes, them being the Republicans. Oftentimes, their thoughts on things like um, 
drugs, all drugs should be legal. Of course, they're not on board with that. Um, <laughs> wars, they're not on board with that. How do you handle those types of conversations with people? If one of my friends is listening, who's a Republican, but he's giving me a shot, which I hope some of them are, how would you address those two topics to a Republican? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I come from the right, so here's the way I do it, because this is the way that would have that did turn my mind back then. I would say that you know that the government is so incompetent in so many things and wealth redistribution and trying to, you know, tackle climate change and trying to set regulatory kind of um, processes and things like that. So what would make them competent to administrate a prohibition state or what would make them competent to administrate a police state? I mean, the same tendencies of power and corruption are inherent in all branches of government. It's not just a single one. So, you know, when, when cops come to your, it's not going to be the bureaucrats that take your guns. If they take your guns, it's going to be the cops. So it's, it's hard for me to separate those two things. And when you can kind of connect the dots and the conservative mind on those things, I think it can have some, some influence. Interesting. And and I recorded an episode just the other night with a couple of my MMA fighter friends locally in Louisville. And one of them, Brandon Bishop, who leans to the right, said to me, we were having a conversation because they always poke fun at me about the anarchy stuff. Because it sounds kind of utopian. Does that make sense? Mm. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. And they're like, well, Kelly, what would we do? What would we do about the infrastructure? I mean, we got roads and we got all this. And, you know, so, I mean, I don't want to, like, go nuts and be like, you guys sound so fucking stupid. You know, that's how I feel like saying, like, you don't think anyone else is capable of making that shit? You think it's got to be some monopoly on the stupid government to be able to create roads and infrastructure? Do you understand what you're saying is what I feel like saying to them? But in a rational description or, or rebuttal, how would you address questions about how an anarcho state would handle things like the roads or infrastructure? Well, roads is an interesting one because that's kind of the classic thing. So every libertarian has heard that. What about the roads? Well, I I respond in a few different ways. Number one, in, in many countries, almost all the transportation is privatized. In Japan, for instance, a company named JR controls much of the transportation, whether it be the rails, the subways, roads, et cetera. In the United States, when they're building roads, when they say who will build the roads, oftentimes it's actually the government going through private firms that that construct them, you know, through contracts. It's not government people that are paving the roads and clearing out, uh, you know, landscapes for roads. It's actually private companies. They're just contracting. Um, the, the third thing I'd say is that the only reason that government kind of is is viewed as doing that or having a monopoly on that in general is because they occupied that field. Um, you could argue that like food is much more important than roads, at least to our immediate necessity, but food is much less regulated than transportation. So there's nothing to say that something that is less regulated can't be done. Um, freely now as far as an anarchist society this is get it gets into a can of worms about how you would describe this but i'll just say personally and this is not all anarchists i don't think that anarchy at least right now is conducive over a large territory i look at it like montesquieu looked at 
a republic. He didn't think that a republic could sustain long in a large territory. I happen to think he was right about that. Um, But I do believe that in, in pockets, you could form covenant communities amongst mutually um, binding individuals that engage in voluntary contracts um, for, for almost anything. So it would take people that are totally signed on to it, but I don't, I don't see 330 million people subscribing to anarchy right now. So if, if that's the question, I do think that's utopian, but I do think if left to the freedom of voluntaristic will, people would be willing to create their own, you know, covenant communities. You know, what's interesting is I try to talk to, for some reason, I'm real intrigued by um, people who are real far to the left. So if someone identifies themselves as an anarcho-communist, I at least want to try to understand more about it because it, it seems like it really contradicts communism, like where my wife's from, and that's anarchy? Like, what the hell? Um, being my wife is from Cuba, that seems like a total military police state. That's not anarchy. Um, but what they end up describing or trying to describe, I'm not saying they're all the most, you know, they don't have it all put together in their head very well, is not that far off from what you just described. Oh, totally. I, I'm actually influenced by some of the anarcho-communist uh, thinkers, believe it or not, like Mikhail Bakunin. He was amazing, if you ask me. I think that um, there's Produn, there was uh, Babouf, even had some decent ideas. Um, but yeah, there there is a tradition in that thought. I tend to think it's untenable because I don't think that you can just outlaw <laughs> outlaw hierarchies without a state so and that seems to be the premise upon most of their beliefs but i try to give it a fair shake i think bakunin bakunin was probably the biggest rival of marx in his time so i mean there are plausible things to to his thought that are intriguing to me and malice talks about this too if you ever listen to michael malice he will defend a lot of like the anarcho-communist and anarcho-socialist thinkers because they were on the right page on many things. It's more more or less the economics that, you know, there's a lot big disagreement on. More so the economics so that, yeah. Okay. Like if you listen to AOC or any of anyone who supports Bernie, they're going to say number one issue is we got to tax the big corporations and the high earners more. That's like the solution. That's the overriding, like that's what we got to do. That'll make everything better. Is that kind of at the core of what you mean by the economics are off? Well, I mean, in in anarcho-communism, like most of the thinkers don't even believe in in having, um, you know, a currency, and, and some of the thinkers don't believe in having a currency, and all believe that the state could, should control the means of production and the distribution of it. So. Um, in terms of opposing subsidies for corporations, that's not strictly like a communist belief. I mean, libertarians would certainly have the belief that you shouldn't s- send a penny to Raytheon or Lockheed Martin. So I, I don't think that's necessarily uh, connected solely to like anarcho-communism or communism. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to group people, the left in our country. Sure. There's not many people who actually describe themselves as anarcho-communists, at least like on the popular political landscape so much, really. True, very true. I mean, do you ever come across someone in your everyday life in Nashville, Tennessee, who's an anarcho-communist? Do you? Okay. Yeah, very few, but I do come across them from time to time. And a lot, there's actually a lot of overlap uh, 
in I've actually had good experiences talking with a few of them. Um, if we can both leave, you know, economics on the table. Um, like I said, a lot of what Bakunin preached is very similar to what I think about the state. So, you know, he he railed against Marx for thinking that there could be this ascension of a dictatorship of a proletariat to, you know, be that link between kind of late stage capitalism and kind of, you know, a socialist um, regime. Uh, Bakunin said that's unfeasible, that's untenable, and the power will become oppressive. And he was totally right. That's exactly what the Soviet Union became. So, yeah, uh, that didn't turn out so well. The Soviet Union <laughs> experiment didn't seem to go so great. Um, could you elaborate a little bit about leaving? You're talking to an anarcho-communist, leave economics on the table. Could you elaborate what you mean about that? Uh, well, w- what I mean about that is just like what I would do for like single issue coalitions with any other group. Like there's a lot of people that are totally against the drug war totally against any kind of criminalization of drugs that would disagree with me on a whole host of other issues. So if they come from the left, the last thing I want to do is try to ruin what we can build together for being against the drug war by just talking about, you know, gun nullification or privatizing nukes or something like that, which I believe in, by the way. Um, the last thing I would want to do is just try to, unless I really had a good relationship with the person where they understood all these dynamics, I wouldn't try to sully that um, that potential for us to work together by just going into territory that I know they would be so dead set against. Does that kind of make sense? It does. It brings up an interesting, and sorry, my interview style is very ADD. So I just am like, oh, I was thinking of this, and oh, I was thinking of this. I'll just start throwing all sorts of random shit um, at you, but that does make sense, and it reminds me of the polar extremes when it comes to messaging, liberty type uh, um, topics. Okay, so I'll use the example of someone I like, Larry Sharp. I've interviewed him multiple times, and I referenced it earlier, but he made it onto the Joe Rogan Experience, and he would ad- he would admit this. He admitted it on the po- on my podcast that. He was a little too combative, okay? <laughs> Did you ever see that interview? I, I saw the one in like 2017, if you're talking about that one. His only one, yeah, yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I have. Um, yeah, Larry's an interesting guy. He has basically universal respect around the party, but I agree. There was there were some parts that he might have been a little combative, but I thought he you know, gave the brand a pretty, pretty fair shake. Um, Larry's a much more interested in the policy aspects than I think the philosophy, which is fine. I think we need both in the party, frankly. So, um, yeah, Dave is better at the ideas and the philosophy and Larry's probably better at the policy. Interesting. So, so Larry was a little more combative when he got on that big stage. If we're, if our goal is to spread these type of Liberty themed messages to different people, there's so many different ways to go about doing it. So Larry Sharp got on this big stage. He was a little, arguably maybe a little too combative, but I agree. I was happy with his performance. I love Larry Sharp. But then I've seen Dave Smith on the podcast before or Michael Malice with Rogan. And Rogan says something. I forget. One time he said something to um, to Michael Malice. He said like, um, well, we need to pay the teachers more. And Michael was like, what? How How much? Dave's or Joe's like more just more and Michael's like well we can't write that on a check like what are you kind of calling him out for it in a (laughs) not so combative but he addressed it 
And then he moved on with something to keep the conversation going. So it did not come across. And oftentimes, I'll even hear Dave or Michael, like, hear something Joe says, and they, they'll address it a little bit, but they won't focus so much on it. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm describing is when it comes to messaging, whether it's you and I talking to people here in Louisville, Kentucky for me, or you in Nashville, or on the, the big stage, I guess the Joe Rogan podcast, um, there, there's such different ways of going about with the messaging. I mean, what, what do you think's best for spreading the liberty message? Is it going after lefties or is it going after Republicans or is it a little bit of both? It's definitely a little bit of both, but the two things that I say is, you know, get to the heart of our platform in radical and clever ways and be irreverent. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I think that much of the indisposed in America is just so sick of, you know, the elites and kind of the designs that they have for everyone else. Whereas the libertarians are in this unique space where we can condemn the elites, regardless of their stripes, because look at what they've brought us in the last century, the welfare state and the IRS and the income tax and the surveillance state and the federal reserve and the great society and the FISA courts and the military industrial complex and the department of Homeland security, the department of education, the drug war, um, the war on terror need I continue. It's just endless. Um, So we, we are in this unique place where we can message radically to our platform in ways that um that make us unique that make us a true third way and not just a, a watered down version of both or just a combination of column a and b i just think that's the wrong route and i think that it's no mistake that our best communicators historically have been the most radical it was harry brown and ron paul in the past and what those guys are doing spike cohen and dave smith are doing today so I think their their style is the best. I think it's paying the most dividends, and that's the kind that I would embrace. I just thought of a, a recent messaging um, debacle, okay? The, the New Hampshire Twitter account, and you're involved in all this stuff, so you can comment or not. I don't know. But they tweeted some crazy shit, including, what's his name? The guy who made the War is Gay video, what's his name? Jeremy Kaufman. I'm a huge fan, by the way. I am, too. I interviewed him. That <laughs> War is Gay video was fucking awesome. It's genius, I think. Okay. And, okay, so I want to make sure I word this correctly. He tweeted, and I'm sure you saw it, a joke. And for some reason, it resonated with me, and I'm sure it resonated with plenty of other people. But it said something to the tune of, and I'm making you... <laughs> give an explanation for why he tweeted this. So I'm sorry to dump this on you. But he tweeted something to the tune of, I'm libertarian. That means I support reparations. We give all African-Americans like a one-way ticket back to Africa or you shut the fuck up about it forever. Something like that. Like, and I'm reading it. I'm like, whoa, whoa." like what, you know, what in the fuck? What just happened? What just happened? Why did we do this? Did you see yeah, that? Did you did you see I that tweet? I actually didn't see that tweet. Okay. I like Jeremy, but I can't defend all his tweets. But I think that you know most of what he tweets is very clever and gets to the heart of kind of the platform in clever ways. His abortion videos were great. His environmentalism video was great. Um, I didn't see that tweet, but you know I just I wouldn't have tweeted that. But most of what Jeremy does is amazing. I agree. Um, have you? Okay, so there are some within the Libertarian Party where if the former 
like Sarwark and the former um, Libertarian National Party people that are no longer a part of the party start constantly trying to write articles, calling the current Mises Caucus racist, things like that, throwing mud, trying to make it ugly. And then there's some libertarians like, okay, we're racist, whatever, okay? And so then it turns into where it, they, they get a little, I guess, edgy, and they try to be funny, and maybe it's difficult to understand. Have you noticed that with some people, and do you think that's an issue? Well, I, I mean, I've noticed the attacks. I mean, people in the Mises Caucus have been called racist for five years. I'm so desensitized to it now that, you know, I just kind of chuckle about it. It's kind of emulating mostly what the mainstream media says about libertarians in general. And frankly, I don't think libertarians will make en- any inroads in, you know, promulgating liberty unless they're called racist, believe it or not. Hmm. I mean, I think that what, what I do think you that, mean that, by, that what do you mean by that? I think that is a weapon of the regime. The regime will look at, you know, dissident sex and do whatever possible they can to ruin their reputation in serious ways um, with the public. And they're let's just say they're not calling, you know, the Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell's of the world racist. They're calling dissidents that actually want to fight their power. So, you know, Americans should look at this with a skeptical eye and see what's going on here. For some reason, the topic of racism within the or people being called racist within the Libertarian Party has been intriguing to me so much so that I heard on an old podcast, Tom Woods or someone referenced Augustus Invictus. I don't know. Are you familiar with who he is? I know who that is. Uh, You know, I I've never met him. Yeah, I interviewed him. I tracked him down. He ended up going to prison and he, he doesn't call himself a libertarian. He is. It sounds like maybe a little bit racist. He said only white males should probably be able to own property in the United States. I guess that's racist. I don't even know. But regardless, so I did find someone who seemed to somewhat embody um, a little bit, you know, at least some racist or white nationalist type views within the party. But I had to dig pretty deep to find that. And and he, he was a Trump supporter. He was supposed to speak at that Unite the Right rally in 2017 (laughs) so he wasn't even uh he i don't think he was uh even called himself libertarian very long so i guess what i'm getting at is you 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 didn't shy away from it you said if we're not being called racist then you're not really doing anything is that kind of what you said and that intrigues me for some reason that that stance intrigues me i i'm not saying be racist to generate those those responses but i do believe that the regime will hone in on anyone that wants to to actually challenge their power um, by, you know, those kind of, you know, harmful things. It's, it's a weapon. It's a weapon in their hands. As far as like Invictus, I've never met him. Um, I think that the alt-right is essentially dead. If it's, if there's anyone still that relates to it, uh, the architect of that term, Richard Spencer, you know, famously a few years ago, got on Twitter and said, you know, Trump's a disaster, the movement's over, and I'm throwing all my support behind Biden. Uh, Chris Cantwell ended oh, up in prison. I, did, I didn't know that. Okay. Chris Cantwell ended up in prison and is likely a Fed, or at least he made some remarks strongly implying that he was a Fed, or at least working with the police in some way. And Invictus, he left the movement too. There, there just isn't that contingent in our party. A lot of the hit pieces would like you to believe that, but even those hit pieces don't even try to say that like Invictus and Cantwell is part of Mises because there's, I mean, they weren't at all. And actually Invictus was you know, a hardcore opponent of our cha- chair candidate in uh, 2018, Joshua Smith. So, um, yeah, it, those guys, I, you know, 
I'm not a fan of, never was, and you know, I don't know what more to say about that. I just don't think there's racists in this movement. I just have never met one. I, I guess that's what I'm so intrigued with is I haven't either, and I'm not going to claim that I meet a bunch of like Democrat or necessarily Republican racist either. So I don't. I'm not saying that you know I'm trying to call anyone else racist or anything like that. But that that the attacks are at least intriguing. Now it doesn't scare me away from being associated with the party or anything like that. I'm just intrigued. Like what the fuck's mm-hmm. going on? Um, but I like how you don't shy away from it. You're like, okay, if we're not being called racist, cause that's a pretty strong word these days. No one wants, you know, uh, that's about as emotional, emotionally charged of a accusation as there exists. I mean, if you ask someone, would you rather someone be a racist or like a child beater? I think a lot of people would say I'd rather be friends with someone who beats their kids. I mean, racist is about the worst thing you can call someone these days. So if the if the establishment is calling a group that, there must be a reason they're doing that. Absolutely, and it's just it's so overdone to the point that like I I don't know if it's just me. You know, me and my ilk have been called racist so much that I'm just kind of desensitized to it. But you're right. I mean, it's it's done to try to ruin reputations. It's intriguing, though. This has morphed over time. Like, for instance, in Thomas Paine's time, mm. you, you know, what the one of the biggest insults you could you could tell a person that they were they that they were a proponent of democracy. <laughs> that would be basically akin to calling someone a racist today really so you i like yeah. how you're doing a segue there you got a book that'll be coming out soon is that true if someone was a absolutely now, I, mean, I assume one of the, you're, you're not a big fan of democracy either no i don't believe in mob rule or you know putting rights up to the the a majority vote at all but it during thomas Paine's time i'm looking at his wikipedia born in in 1737 or 36 died in 1809 but in his time if you were a proponent of democracy that was quite the accusation yeah and he got it when he published common sense there was no more radical tract that had ever came out in north america by that point and one of his biggest antagonist um beefers in the media basically called him a crack brain zealot for democracy. And that's just one example. But if you called someone a Democrat, they, they meant it in, in the way that the Greeks misused it. The Greeks embraced democracy on a local level that basically threatened people's livelihoods and liberty because they put their property up to a majority vote. Now, a lot of people, when they use that term, I don't think they necessarily use it in the correct way today. For instance, I don't think a constitutional republic is a democracy, but some people act like it is. So the idea behind like a constitutional republic is that your rights can't be put up for a majority uh, rule vote because they're protected innately as a baseline. Like you can't even venture into that territory. And for me, the most ideal is, you know, an anarcho-capitalism where everyone subscribes to live in a place based on contracts, based on voluntarism. Um so, yeah, I mean, that term gets thrown around to mean a lot, and it's kind of been soiled in various ways. But when I'm against democracy, I'm against, you know, m- mob rule. So Interesting. Tell, tell our listeners more about your upcoming book about Thomas Paine. Yeah, so Thomas Paine, A Lifetime of Radicalism, comes out next month, the day after Christmas, Black Friday. 
Um, it has been blurred and supported by Tom Woods, Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Jeff Deist, Marco Bassani, and Brad Berzer. So I'm really excited to have all of their endorsements. It took over four years to write. I had an excellent editor help me. Brilliant graphic designer designed the cover. Really excited to release it. It will be available on www.davebenner.com. I have an online store via a link that you can click in the middle of the screen. And yeah, I'm just really excited to get it out there. Thomas Paine, love him or hate him. He was one of the most influential people of his time. And he really influenced the course of not only the U.S., but Britain and France in many different ways. And I cover you know, his life from beginning to end. And there's a lot of incredible things that I got to learn about him in the process. Wow. At what age? Actually, tell me, um, what did, did you go to college? At what age did you decide you were going to get into like being an author? How did that come about? Um, man, I, I didn't really have a, a specific age, but when I did go to college, I started off as a computer um, kind of computer science degree, but I switched that in college to history because I got just really intrigued in the American founding. Like I just went down a rabbit hole into the founding period and that's really what switched it for me. It wasn't like a particular teacher, a particular person, but what, what I will say is one of the impetuses, whereas like a lot of what I had been told about the founding era and the founding fathers, I found not to be true. And that just really kind of spurred me to want to learn more and uh, get deeper into it. So I would credit that as one of the reasons. Interesting. You described yourself, I believe you described yourself earlier as an anarcho-capitalist. Is that right? Yeah, I would call myself that. Um, You know, that's my ideal, but I would concede that, hey, I, I would not be against, you know, a minarchy state that only funds uh you know police and courts and you know defensive wars compared to the status quo so i'm kind of more of an issue by issue guy but in the ideal yeah in the abstract i'm an anarcho-capitalist because i think that the only moral and justifiable way to run a society is by absolute voluntarism there couldn't be any uh, coercion or a monopoly on violence held by any entity um, such as the state has today so it's very interesting. I, of course, always use my own personal life as a point of reference, but my wife moved from um, totalitarian regime Cuba in 2014. She didn't really stumble onto like home ownership and the whole, she, she's had like a political evolution that I've got to witness. It's been super cool. Um, but in 2020, um, she ended up buying a house. And, you know, the whole concept of private property is very fascinating, okay? And, and since, you know, she ended up, we've, we've moved in together. She's now renting that house out. So she's making a little bit, not getting rich off of it, but the whole concept of fucking owning something is uh, um, very fascinating. She's teaching her daughter. My stepdaughter, we're teaching her about the idea of, you know, collecting rent and having ownership and how it's not all gravy. You're not rich. It's not like, you know, she still has a mortgage on the house. So <laughs> I'm using this example because I see it. And and, and I think my, my wife um, is a true believer if there is any because she experienced the other side of it. Why do you think private property rights are so important and such a uh, necessary ingredient when it comes to freedom? Um, because uh, kind of paramount to the 
libertarian ethos is self-ownership and your property is essentially an extension of yourself, right? Um, even the classical liberal theorists like Locke and Sidney and Hume believed that, right? So Locke thought that all kind of resources were given to mankind in the commons and you would create property in the first case by combining your labor with it. Um, so essentially it's, it's basically how we have to base civilization around because it's an extension of yourself. You own yourself. So you own your labor, you own all the proceeds of your labor and no one else has a better moral claim to it than you. And that includes government it includes your next door neighbor that might be envious of you. Um, it includes everyone that might want a piece of it, but they don't have a higher moral claim than you. And it's just that principle spread out into every area of the world. And it does seem to then, you know, uh, I was touching earlier on the generational thing. If you, you own a house, you can then pass it on to your kids. So that's probably consistent with the idea of a nuclear family being intact. Probably statistically increases the likelihood of a family kind of staying together if they own something. How much weight do you put in the notion of like a nuclear family and things like that. A lot of Republicans, that's a big part of their identity politically. Is that consistent with what you believe? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think stability in the family is extremely important. I think most studies show that. This is not my particular area of expertise, but, um, you know, demographics show that, you know, healthy family life is really important. Um, You know, the livelihood of individuals is conversely affected by, you know, families that that are struggling, you know, dealing with abuse and, and things like that, for sure. But th- this is not really my area of expertise, so I don't really feel comfortable um, getting into it too far, I would say. Interesting. Okay. Um, if someone's interested in learning more about you, actually, tell me about, what is it? Is this your third book that you have published? Yeah, this is my third book. My first one was called Compact of the Republic, the League of States and the Constitution that I published in 2014. And that's essentially kind of a defense of the decentralized nature of America's political system, because in most countries in the world, they're based on a central government where all of kind of the per- peripheries and regions are simply there at the administrative convenience of the central government. But in the United States, the states actually built the federal government. So, and I don't think that's an insignificant quality. So I talk about that and show why that was the case and why it was beneficial to our conception of liberty from the start and how that's eroded over time. I've also written a book about the 14th Amendment and the incorporation doctrine. That's a whole nother can of worms that I won't get into. And this is the third one. So I'm really excited. And you and Reed Cooley are kind of in charge of the official Libertarian Party Twitter account. Yeah, I'm honored for that. I did not expect to be put in this role, actually. I told Angela that I'd be interested in working in social media, and I have been the communications director of the Libertarian Party of Tennessee for a year and a half, and we built our Twitter account up real fast, and I think she liked it, and she put me in this position, and I'm really grateful for it. It's fun. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of thinking of new ideas, you know, keeping up with the news and stuff like that, but you know, I'm just trying to do my part. Um, it's bearing fruit. Our metrics are really good. In about five, four and a half months, we've upped our followers about 40K. Wow. Um, impressions have steadily improved. We did get hacked. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. Could you summarize what happened there? What was that? 
we got hacked somehow and um reed has had has headed up an investigation with twitter about how how it occurred but we don't fully know but whoever hacked us changed our profile to kind of like this nft guy that uh, makes money selling nfts but we were able to recover it it was a slog twitter is really slow to respond and um so that kind of derailed us a little bit but i mean at metrics wise we're doing really good on the account Okay. How important is something like the Twitter account to the Libertarian Party? That's a really good question. There are people out there that will say, like, not important at all. Some people would probably say it's, like, totally destructive. And some people say it, it's really important. I think it is really important because it's it's the one outlet that non-Libertarians, a lot of them will actually get exposed to our beliefs through that avenue. Um, if not that, we have to kind of count on, you know, debate appearances, you know, local media, podcasts, stuff like that. People just stumbling upon it. But Twitter is something that links a lot of kind of the political community together, more or less, and sometimes apart. In some ways, Twitter is kind of built for people to be antagonistic toward each other. Um, so I do think it's really important. I don't think it's um the most important thing. I just think the ideas are important and whatever the vehicle you're using to get the ideas out there. Um, many of them are important and Twitter is only one. So I do think it's really important, but uh, you know, many people will have different opinions on that. You are in Tennessee. Of course, you're very familiar with the libertarian party of Tennessee. Have there been any significant, maybe libertarian, uh, candidates on the local level, anyone, um, I've got a friend, Jesse Romans, an MMA fighter. He moved to Knoxville mm. and he trains at a gym there in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, um, so I'm intrigued with, with the state of Tennessee, what's going on with the libertarian party of Tennessee and really the presence yeah. of libertarians in Tennessee. Well, we have four really great candidates for November. Our governor candidate, gubernatorial candidates, LaMichael Wilson. He has a pretty good presence on Twitter. Really great messenger good person i'm friends with i'm excited to vote for him we have nick sawwell he's running for state house in uh, region 81 we have dave jones he's running for u.s congress he is our state chair and we have uh, cole abel he's running for mayor of carthage tennessee and he's already a fixture in the city council there great libertarian all four of those guys are fantastic really proud to support them um, so yeah, that's, what's going on. We're trying to, we're basing campaign mode. It's the last, you know, two weeks before the campaigns and, you know, we're excited about those, those campaigns. What would a successful outcome of these four campaigns be? Well, ideally it's to win, but if you can't win, we want to, you know, spread the message and, you know, create new libertarians on the campaign trail. That's not something that I take for granted. Like, um, you know, one of Ron Paul's greatest, the greatest fruits of Ron Paul's presidential victories was not that he won because he obviously didn't, but he awoken, he planted so many different seeds in people's minds about various aspects of libertarianism, whether it be Austrian economics, you know, decentralization, some kind of originalist constitutional stuff being super anti-war. And if our candidates do that too, um, I, you know, I got to tell you, if they don't win, I say, give me 10,000 lifelong Liberty activists any day over a hundred thousand votes in an election where you don't win. So, um, there's different ways that you can, 
breed success, but ideally it would be for one of them to win. I think at least one of them will win. So what do you think? And I'm putting you on the spot with so many random questions. I apologize, but what do you think is the biggest libertarian candidate win in the history of the United States? Hmm. Oh man. Putting you on the spot there, huh? Yeah, that's so a, tough. Amash man. switched over, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, but uh, he didn't win as a libertarian, so it might not answer your question. But that so was, I guess, what I'm saying. If someone's criticizing the Libertarian Party, which I deal with all the time, I said it. Now I'm even hearing it from my damn son, 13 year old son. They're, they'll say, "Hey, you guys don't win anything. You guys don't. You are not relevant. What are you wasting <laughs> your time with?" And I'm comfortable saying, "Okay, my my justification has been this." I'm going to die one day, okay? I would like to contribute to what I actually think is good instead of just voting for the team I think has a better chance of winning um, so that when yeah. people remember me, they can say, yeah, Kelly stood for something. He, he had, you know, does that make sense? I, I know we're yeah. circling back to well, what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, um, but yeah. it's an ongoing theme for me. Marshall Burt in Montana may be a good answer too, because he's in their state legislature. But what I would say is it's a little bit of a narrow view, not only because there is, I believe, over 300 elected libertarians in the U.S. And there's that's on our webpage. There is a, a page on LP.org that, sh that lists all the elected libertarians. But that's not the only way you influence societal change, actually, you know. <laughs> You influence societal change by all sorts of things outside of the political process. It's spreading the ideas. Um, in Payne's time, um, separation from Great Britain didn't wasn't determined based on the ascension of one political party over the other. It was about awakening the ideas of liberty in people's minds. Same thing with you know opposing prohibition. It wasn't a single political party that overturned prohibition. It was that those ideas won themselves over in culture and then influence the political process by proxy. Same thing with the fugitive slave crisis, same thing with the civil rights era. There's many times in human history where it wasn't because of the ascension of one party over the other that affected so many things. Okay. Interesting. Marshall Burt. I was not familiar with him, so I'm happy. Mm -hmm. I'm happy. <laughs> I asked the question. Um, <laughs> what, what, what can you tell me about Marshall Burt? I don't actually know that much about Burt, but he's out in Montana. He won, you know, his election, I believe in 2020 or 2018. I can't remember for sure. It says assumed office in 2021. So January of 2021. So he won in 2020. Okay. Yeah. I don't know much about him, but you know, he's part of the party and uh, happy to have him and he's probably making a difference out there. Even if he can't, you know, stop, all the madness on the local level, I'm sure he's doing his, his best, and he's probably being put on a committee where he can have some tangible influence. So, In hindsight, what Ron Paul ended up doing was, of course, running as a Republican. So there's you don't have any problem with someone doing that, right? Oh, I don't. Actually, this might put me in hot water, but I'm not a partisan guy. I'm only about the principles and philosophy. So mm. I, I don't care what the letter next to your name is. I only care if you reflect libertarian principles and i only support the party because i think it's it's a promising vehicle to transport those principles to a wider public um so no i'm absolutely a huge ron paul fan and i could answer him because he was a libertarian he won as a, a republican sure but that was just a letter next to his name everyone knew 
that the Republican establishment despised him and he stood on his principles and he did it in a radical way and a reasonable way at the same time. So absolutely. If there's a modern incarnation of Ron Paul, would you say maybe it's Thomas Massey? I do. Yeah. I think Massey's the best congressman by far. I'm a huge fan. There's only been like one or two things I've ever really disagreed with him on. He's fantastic. I love Thomas Massey. He voted, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he voted against some weed legalization thing and he got he did. Some, some shit for it i assume that's not one of the things you had a problem with it actually is so that okay. one's a tough one huh. because okay. I, tell I, me about that educate me because i don't know much well, about it. i'll shut up okay so i'm not an expert in this but he voted against kind of a marijuana led uh, legalization omnibus package that in his mind he had to oppose because it would have set up a new taxing apparatus behind it. So in return for legalizing the marijuana, it would set up a new tax scheme. And that's the reason he opposed it. And I say fair enough that I, I can understand the argument, but like it, it's just it's much more flat out morally wrong for me to keep people behind bars for indulging in this substance than it is to charge people extra money if they want to get it. So that's a trade-off um, that, you know, I just come down on the other side of. I would rather legalize it even if it becomes tax. I think taxes are completely illegitimate and immoral, by the way. But there's a lot of people rotting for them. So. Okay. And, for and, possession. And how, how do we think he got elected? I mean, I've heard it described that Ron Paul just he had an R by his name. The people in that little area liked him because he had delivered so many babies. But we don't think everybody in northern my mother actually lives. I don't know if she voted for him, but uh, she lives in Thomas Massey's district. So I wish I could vote for him, but I don't get to. But how do we think someone like that got elected? Did he just happen to be in the right spot at the right time and have an R next to his name? I don't know all the ins and outs of Kentucky politics, but what I have heard from people that are in Kentucky that do follow this stuff is that he's, you know, he has good, he has great, he's built great relationships with people in the legislature and such that have, you know, made sure that that district is gerrymandered that he can win. <laughs> that's, that's from what I've heard, but I don't know how much truth there is to that. Don't take that as gospel, but I don't think it's just that he's, you know, he's an amazing speaker. He's extremely articulate, ridiculously smart. And even though he has like very radical views compared to kind of the status quo of Washington politics, uh, you, no one can say that guy's an idiot. He's extremely smart. I use that as an example often is people say, yeah, well, you got to vote for Trump. I mean, Trump was a great president. And I'm like, hey, man, he was not a small government president with the CARES Act. Thomas Massey stood up against him. I say this I, once a week. And Trump mm -hmm. mocked him for opposing the biggest spending bill at the time in, our, in the history of our country. So, I mean, what, what do you need other than the fact that Trump definitively mocked Massey for opposing the biggest spending bill ever? What more <laughs> that do you need than to prove that Trump is not a small government uh, politician? Right. Well, and starting kind of the proto UBI experiment that was kind of the Trump bucks and for invoking emergency legislation that essentially gave the state governors cover to enact the, the COVID regime and lockdown state and for exacerbating two wars and for imposing protectionist tariffs unilaterally, um, all sorts of different things that Trump did that were that were terrible. That's being said, I mean, I think he did do some good, at least optically. 
you know, he basically made the mainstream media look like idiots. I don't think that translated into policy very well, but I liked his populist streak. I liked him, you know, really sticking it to the mainstream media and just slamming the door in their face in regard to, you know, how fallacious and corrupt or like how corrupt they are. So, yeah. And Trump was corrupt too. Don't get me wrong. Um, he called out Jeb Bush during the, um, the, the process of getting into office, right? He called out Jeb Bush pretty good. You had to like that. <laughs> Who couldn't like that? I mean, but it's just, too, it's a bummer though, because Rand Paul ran and that that's the guy that I thought, you know, had the best chance of wooing me or like making some impression, but he let Trump run to the more anti-war um, flank of him. I just didn't understand the way that Rand Paul was running his campaign. It was a disappointment, but you know, Trump, for, even for the people who hate him the most, they got to, at some level, agree that he's got something. He's got some instincts or something to him that at least is opportunistic or savvy or, or something there where he senses what people want and he's like, uh, he's a magnet toward whatever it is. It doesn't mean it's a principled place or anything. But uh, um, what, what do you think, if you had to say what the most, the, the most positive impact of the trump presidency on our country was what was that it's absolute irreverency to the establishment even though trump was establishment the optics were that he wasn't and i think that's important just the just the optics is important for there to just to be this mass awakening of people that are just saying enough is enough we're sick of being you know propagandized to in our children in their schools um you know, that, that was the most positive, but again, it didn't really translate into policy. I'm much more down on Trump than, than a lot of people are, but I'll give him that, I guess. Okay. Well, Dave, he surrounded himself with swamp creatures. <laughs> he surrounded himself with, with swamp creatures. What's an example Cre of that? Creatures. Um, you know, just the terrible advisors he put around himself, John Bolton, um, Tillerson, Steve Bannon, just, just really terrible advisors. Um, and some that didn't even seem to match his kind of policy aims. Like it, it just, it, there's no excuse putting Mnuchin in and, and Bolton in. he didn't even message toward a neocon kind of streak in his campaign. It just made no sense. So you're critical of Trump. I've heard a lot of criticisms of Trump. I assume that means you're a Biden fan. Yes, I'm 100% Biden. 2024, let's go, baby. <laughs> Dave Smith, screw him, go Biden. Don't clip that part. <laughs> who who do you... Build back better. <laughs> is, is, what, what are your thoughts on what's going on right now with Biden? How's that going? I don't know. It's almost like a piece of me just still, it can't, it, I just don't believe they're going to put him up as the presidential nominee right now, but I don't know what else they do. I mean, I, I just think that Kamala Harris has like worse approval ratings than him. And, you know, some of his other challengers didn't, didn't seem to make too much of an impact. I just, I guess that he's going to be the nominee. I can't see why not. I think it would optically be a, bigger nightmare for them if they tried to change ships so i guess he's gonna run but he's you know he's gonna be his administration is gonna be led by other people i just you know he can't even find his way to the door after his speeches most of the time these days so do you think at the end of 
Biden's four years in office, he will have put the country into more debt than Trump or no? Ooh, I haven't looked at the figures closely enough, I think, to opine on that, but I think he's he's on track. I mean, the infrastructure bill, I think, was two trillion on its own, and he's gotten the chips bill passed and um, the, the Inflation Acceleration Act, I call it. So, uh, yeah, I, I think he might be on pace, but I don't know, Kelly. Have you been following that? No, but I no. That's I assume you know everything. So. <laughs> if, if he's fallen precedent, I mean, he will. I mean, every president does it, you know, to a greater degree than the last. I think since for many presidents. So yeah, and that's what sucks so bad about like the CARES Act in the Trump administration setting the damn bar so high. Like if we're trying to destroy our dollar, if we're trying to right. destroy our currency, if that's what we're trying to do, this is what we need to do. Absolutely. In just 18 months, they doubled the monetary supply. What that means is the number of dollars they printed essentially doubled in 18 months. It was so unprecedented. And then they asked, like, we didn't see this and we, we didn't see this inflation coming. It's just cr- no one. I, I, I really hope people kind of kind of see through this madness. I've tried to tell. I told one of my buddies at jujitsu a couple months ago that, you know, in 18 months, they like doubled. I forget exactly what the number was. The total number of dollars that are out there, it doubled in like a year, year and a half. Did you know that? And they're just like, no way, man. You mean all the dollars ever? You know, it's, it's like difficult for someone who doesn't follow it closely to wrap their heads around. They're like, no, man, that's fake. That sounds like uh, Alex Jones conspiracy theory <laughs> stuff. Like that's right. That sounds fake. Like all yeah. the money ever. They doubled it. What? How did that happen? What's what's going on? Yeah, and even if people believe that, a lot of people don't understand the dangers of inflation, but you can just see it in kind of in germ by, you know, taking a 7-Up bottle and uh, putting, you know, uh, dipping your cup in water and diluting the 7-Up with water. It makes it that much less valuable by injecting more of it. It depreciates the remaining amount. That's why people call inflation a tax on wealth holdings because it's essentially a tax just in another form. Okay. Well, Dave Benner, I really appreciate you coming on. Great conversation. Before we wrap things up, uh, if someone's interested in following you, of course, the Libertarian National uh, Twitter account, they can find your, your, your tweets and your activity there, but also at dbenner eighty three. On Twitter, how else can they follow you and can they learn more about what you have to say, Dave? Yeah, um, DaveBenner.com. That is my website. That's where I post articles and I'll have you know my book for sale. Yeah, DBenner83 on Twitter and that's about it. I really appreciate you having me on, man. This is a fun conversation. We got into a lot of things that I didn't anticipate, so it was great. That's kind of the style is just start to <laughs> you know fire off random stuff I've been wondering about. So I, I think you're a great resource and, and very valuable for not only the Libertarian Party of Tennessee, but also obviously Angela McCardell uh, uh, puts you into being one of the two guys who's in charge of the, the national Twitter account for the, the party. So I'd say... You're, you're pretty well-respected within the, the, the national party. And what's interesting about you and Spike Cohen, too, I would, put you, I would group you two together for the sake of this. <laughs> That's is, crazy. Is, is that you both were in the previous regime, right? 
No, I was I was not only elected to the LNC in 2020, and Spike is not on the LNC, if that's what you mean. Oh, okay. Well, I associated Spike more. Obviously, he was part of the Joe Jorgensen ticket. Yes. Okay. He was the vice presidential nominee, correct. I love Spike. He's fantastic. For you to group me with him, that alone is a uh, huge compliment. Okay, but what I mean is, what I'm saying is that you guys are not necessarily just Mises all the way. You're just... Liberty all the way. I am Mises all the way and Liberty all the okay, way. Okay, so I, I don't do mean, yeah, I said that. not necessarily Mises, but it's like Spike is Mises all the way too, I believe, right? No, he's not. Okay. I think he would consider himself part of the caucus and he, you know, he was part of the group when it first got started essentially, but he doesn't claim to be part of any caucus in the strictest sense, I don't think. Okay, and that's fine, right? That's yeah, ir- That's irrelevant, totally. right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I have no problems with, you know, other libertarians that want to kind of align into a different faction or brand. I only have a problem with bad faith actors that call me racist. Mm. <laughs> I hate that I have to say that for, for my um, preference. So. so that is much of the previous regime. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it. It's a lot of loud. It's a small number of loud mouths, relatively speaking that, you know, so a lot of discord and, you know, engage in a lot of slander, but even the previous regime, I, I'm, I don't know many that would have called me that personally. I just don't know. I, we had differences in strategy and priorities, but I don't view the, the previous regime as the people that did that very much. Okay. But I do think of you and Spike uh, uh, now, at least my impression of you is that you're both for libertarian uh, ideals and, and principles at all costs. That's your that's your uh, strategy. That's your messaging. You're both big supporters of Dave Smith, right? I don't think so. I don't know where Spike comes down. If he runs, he's going to be a Spike Cohen supporter. <laughs> so, True. Okay. Um, so do you he, think he Spike, and Dave, Spike and Dave are the two most likely candidates to possibly be the president in 2024? Presidential I candidate. Do. Yeah, I do. I think Amash is the third most uh, uh, potential, but yeah, I, I think S- Spike and Dave are very close. I know that, so I, I don't know what that means if both will run or not. But uh, I think those, I would love to see a contest between those three. I respect all three immensely in different ways. Um, so yeah, that'd be interesting. But I'd support Dave. Dave's your choice. Dave's my 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 guy, man. Who's your choice for the vice president? If if he if he runs, probably Spike. Um, but I don't know who's going to run, actually, for that, to be honest. A lot of people are talking Maj Torre. I love Maj, too. If he runs, that'd be really intriguing. But if Spike runs, I would like him, too. It, it's tough to say right now because there's more speculation of who's going to run for president than vice president right now. Because a lot of the people that don't win president could run for vice president. So mm-hmm. it complicates it a little bit. It'd be interesting to have Dave Smith and Spike Cohen, two Jewish guys, on the ticket. <laughs> to see if there are still some people who call them Nazis. <laughs> there, there would be. I have no doubt, but that is that is kind of funny and ironic if so, yeah. Well, great stuff, Dave Benner. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, hey, thanks, Kelly. This is awesome, man. I really appreciate it. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to the Kelly Patrick Show. Of course, we'll have another episode out soon. 